0: All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Precision Rifle Channel podcast. This is 2020. This is our first podcast of the year, and I'm very excited and happy to have our good friend, Mr. Clay Blacketer on the show with us today. Clay, how are you, sir?
1: I'm doing good. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well. Thank you. So for all of our guests out there, if you can, give us a quick rundown on who you are and, and what you do.
1: Uh, My name is Clay Blacketer. I'm from Oklahoma. Unfortunately, I live in Oklahoma City. There's way too many people here. Um, I'm from a little town called Leedy in western Oklahoma, which is right where my match is going to be later on this year. And uh, I do load development, manufacture ammo, and offer reloading services, Um, you know, via Clay's Cartridge Company as my job.
0: Very nice. So let's talk about that real quick. Clay's Cartridge Company, this is a new business for you. How did this come about and how's it going for you? And what are the services that you offer a little bit more in detail?
1: Uh, I was in Wade's shop getting a barrel done and we just started talking and uh, it was just, I guess I don't know exactly how it came about, but they would, the idea was was birthed in uh, in his shop and it just seemed like a really good way for me to to get into this industry. I just love the people that are in it. I love being part of it and I wanted to get into it somehow. And obviously you can't start a gun building business when Wade lives 45 minutes from you and try and compete with that guy. So right. it was just a good avenue to uh, to start with. But uh, um, it's going well. We do. Uh, I do a lot of low development, uh, and it's really fun for the non-standard calibers. I mean, when people send me a Creedmore or a Dasher, I mean, it seems like you can do that in about five minutes if you've done a few of them. Uh because you know the quality of, of guns that people have these days makes my life a little bit easier but it, it's real fun when I get the oddballs um where people are gonna they're going out for a once in a lifetime hunt they've gotten a draw to, to some unit that they've wanted for the last twenty years and they finally get it and they send me their gun and uh you get to do you know the twenty dollars or three hundred rums things like that uh I think those are a lot of fun and and then obviously I, I mass-produce um, 6 Creedmoor, 6 GT, and pretty much anything else is just custom order. There's just too many things to, uh, available for me to be able to stock them all. So when uh, somebody orders some of the some, some of the other things that I do, um, I'll get components and, and get it rolling. But as far as what I stock on the shelves, 6 Creedmoor, 6 GT is it.
0: Awesome. So essentially I buy a new rifle, and i'm going out for this epic hunt i send you everything i send you my rifle my scope my whatever and you build a load for me
1: i build a load for you uh i started at 100 yards obviously um get something that's you know shooting in the same hole and uh and then i get data out to at least a thousand depending on what you're wanting to do with it I'll, i can go to a mile but most people aren't going to take a shot anywhere near a thousand yards so that's typically plenty but uh, right. i can go out as far as I need to but uh, by the time i get done um they'll have you know, ammo loaded, coming back with them, they'll have data. It'll be you know in their Kestrel. They typically will um, send a Kestrel with me, and I'll I'll plug it in there. So the only thing that they're really going to need to to do whenever they get there is plug in their range and make sure they've got a an accurate density altitude and dial and send it.
0: So you'll program their Kestrel and everything for them, so it's a complete turnkey solution. Absolutely. That's pretty awesome. That that's really cool for especially for guys like me out here in Southern California where I don't have an opportunity. To shoot you know long-range distances I can go out maybe five six hundred yards but to get data out to a thousand where I'm at in California is pretty difficult.
1: A lot of people don't have access to it and I mean we're fortunate where we live that there's a lot of places around here to go a lot of what I do is out at Justin's range at foul boar but I there's a ton of places I can go to shoot a thousand yards and it's just it's it's nice to have as many people in the game as we have out here.
0: Phenomenal now you're not only manufacturing cartridges for or putting components together for hunting, but you do a lot of the reloading or the load development for a lot of the top precision rifle shooters in the nation as
1: well. Quite a few of them, yes. It's, you know, been pretty fortunate that uh, some of the people that are as good as they are gave me the opportunity to do that for them, and they've taken it and ran with it. So now they can show up to a match, not have to worry about, you know, did I have to stay up until 2 in the morning to load my ammo or, or not? They just get to show up and it's there ready for them.
0: So what you're saying is the day before a match, I can call you and place an order and they'll have my ammo ready for me?
1: That might be a little bit late but because uh, that's typically what I'm doing mine. I always do mine last um, so that if someone's going to get a screw up from it, me being too tired, it's me. But uh, pretty much any time other than the day of, you'd be good to go.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, that seems like something that is a, a huge value, a huge asset to a lot of people because a lot of the top competitors, a lot of the people that I know that you're helping with their loading is, you know, these guys are very busy. They're manufacturing. They're doing other stuff. So what a great service. Great idea. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. So now let's get into who you are as a competitor. Uh, how long have you been shooting and how did you get into this sport?
1: Um, about a month and a half from now will be three years um, that I've been shooting. I uh, There's a guy that I used to play college baseball with and I hadn't seen him since, uh, since I uh, – Since we'd left college and I saw his birthday coming up on Facebook and he had a, uh, what was obviously a custom bolt as his Facebook picture. And so I said, Hey, happy birthday. By the way, that's a pretty nice looking rifle. You got there. And I, I didn't know anything. And uh, he's like, yeah, it's a, you know, blah, 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 whatever it is. Would you like to go out and shoot sometime? And so we kind of just reconnected right there. And there was a range that had just opened outside of Chickasha, uh, which is about an hour ish from where I live. And he's like, let's go out there this Friday. So we went out there and it just happens to be uh, a precision. And okay. so I met, Ju- I met Justin for the first time and we shot his gun. It was a three Oh eight of some sort. I don't remember what it was. And I, uh, didn't have, didn't have anything. I mean, that I could shoot. I mean, I had, a, I had, a, had, yeah, had a deer rifle that I could maybe hit a pie plate one out of 10 times at a hundred yards with, but, uh, I didn't have anything to actually shoot with. And he said that he was going to be hosting his first match out there and, in about a week or two. And so I went and bought a Ruger Precision Rifle, and I don't know where I got the money for that or for the um, Vortex PST that I got to put on top of it. But I went out and I zeroed the gun the day before the match, and I practiced a little bit. And I show up to the match. And, I mean, I have absolutely nothing. I've never done anything like this before. I'm completely clueless. Uh, the rear bag that I used, I had a a pistol range bag because I like shooting pistols. And there was a separator in my range bag. And I took that separator out and I put a T-shirt in it and zipped it up. And that's what I used as a rear bag. So, like, whether I was shooting on a barricade, whether I was shooting, you know, prone, that was what I was – that was the only thing that I had. And uh, there was a stage there – Where you had to build a position and shoot through this broken window. And there was two rules. One you can't or three rules. You couldn't shoot the window, couldn't shoot the frame, and you couldn't have any part of your body touching the ground. And so I made my position. I thought I was, you know, all cool and I shoot and they say impact. And so I'm just 10 out of 10 excited that I've figured this out. And uh, then someone comes over and says, you know, that's a DQ. That's a DQ. I'm like, what, what do you mean? That's a DQ. And I, well, I had hit the target and how I don't know, because it went through the frame of the window and, uh, so, so I got DQ'd and I've never met Rick Reeves before, but him and a couple other guys come by and, um, they're like, Oh, there's always some asshole there to laugh at you. Um, and they just start laughing and I'm just like mortified <laughs> cause it's my first match. And, um, obviously he was just playing around and I got to know him pretty well after that. But, uh, I got dead last, um, at that match. I think there was probably only 10 people there, but I got dead last, got crushed. And, uh, but immediately I knew that this was something that I wanted to do and, uh, I sold that gun the next day, and I started looking up gunsmiths in the area. And I stumbled upon Wade Studeville, and I called him, and he said I could come check out a shop. And I come checking out a shop, and um, he asked what I was shooting. I was like, oh, I'm not really shooting anything. I was like, I don't have anything, and um, I, uh, you know, decided what I was going to build. It was going to be a six five And this is when the impacts, you know, there's probably only ten or fifteen of them out in the wild at the time, right? And uh, um, so it was gonna be on an impact action, and six or eight months later um he handed me a gun and i started started going um it just and i so I didn't do really anything shooting related in between that first match and when the gun got built, I all rode some matches just to kind of see what it was about but uh as soon as I got it, I just started hitting it hard
0: that is the most awesome story I've ever heard that is really badass.
1: Thank you it's a it's been an adventure for sure i just i I've been very fortunate that the people that I've been around just are as good as they get, and I'm not saying that just because I'm around them. you can pretty much ask anybody um, I mean Tate is as good as it gets you know Amy and John Kyle live an hour and a half from me they're you know awesome people, and Wade of course, I mean some of the stuff that he's done for me when you know. I was just getting started. He knew I didn't have enough money to build a gun, letting me go piece by piece. I mean, just most people wouldn't have done, you know, the things that, that they've done. I just, you know, very appreciative to have people like that around.
0: That I mean, that is really, really cool. I mean, you literally, in three years from not knowing anything and having to, you know, start off dead last at your first match to, you know, you're the 2019 PRS champion in three years, that is quite the Cinderella story.
1: <laughs> it, it kind of is. And I mean, I just, anybody that knows me knows that whatever I do, I I want to be the best at. And it, it can be something very simple. I mean, we could play, if me and you played checkers one day and you beat me, which would probably happen, I would probably go home and start looking up strategies for checkers and start playing anybody I knew so that the next time that we played, I I'd beat you, and that that started from when I was a little kid. My brother used to beat me at you know whatever video game, whatever anything that we were playing, and so then I would dedicate myself to you know becoming better at that than he was, and it just snowballed the same way for for baseball and you know just pretty much everything that I that I do.
0: That's crazy. That that's the the amount of drive and. Uh, I, I don't know a better word, but the amount of drive and, and dedication to do something like that, to study it and basically, for all intents and purposes, master it in three years is mind blowing. Because I know guys that have been shooting for, you know, five, six years that are nowhere near your skill level.
1: I, th- I think part of that comes from. Uh, again i'm very fortunate to to live where i live and have the people around me but when you go to a club match and you've got to face off against austin orgain rick reeves tate streeter wade Studeville, justin vineyard i mean you can just go on and on and on um justin watts i mean if you don't show up and kill it you're gonna get beat like a drum so it's not our club matches aren't you know club matches they're harder than a lot of national matches are and so it was just kind of sink or swim from the beginning so for me to and I didn't know at whenever I started you know what kind of shooters that we had around I've, I've obviously since learned that but all I saw was people that were beating me so then I started working to try and beat them and the first one that I was trying to catch that I saw all the time was Rick Reeves and then you know I finally beat him and I'm, who who knows how long it was after that that I beat him a second time but uh, um, Austin would show up and, you know, he'd beat me like a drum and Tate would show up and he'd beat me like a drum and just the list goes on. And so to me, it was just the guys that I knew that I was trying to beat. And I didn't know at the time at what level they were. So, um, and a lot of people don't have that opportunity when they go to a club match. They might not have, you know, but, you know, one or two people to compete against. Um, but uh, there was always someone for me to chase. And some states just aren't fortunate enough. And we have so many that it just, it, it was just good motivation
0: yeah i would say so what did you do to jumpstart start everything so to speak i mean you don't go from not knowing anything and placing dead last with an rpr to being you know a a, a great shooter that's bidding beating rick reeves and the oklahoma boys overnight what did you do to get to that level
1: i shot basically every club match possible um so my first year, um, I went to the Bushnell brawl and I, I had no idea what I was getting into going down there. Um, but, uh, I think I, I mean, I'm sure it was, she, you know, sheer luck, but I think I got 20th ish down there and that was my first PRS match. And, uh, huge. um, I, I didn't know that it was huge to me. I was like, I got beat by 19 other people. Like that's the way that I looked at it. um, and, uh, so I, you know, start shooting and practicing, doing some more things. And, uh, I just started a different business and we weren't paying ourselves anything. And I think I had to my name, no exaggeration. I think I had like 45 or 50 bullets left. And this is when I was shooting a six, and a, a came out called the North American long range shooting association. And I saw that Eric Cortina had just won like $6,000 in one of these matches. I'm like, I got to see what this is about. And so I called the guys that are running it and they say what the format is and you shoot it. Um, these electronic targets at 500 yards and then 750 and then a thousand and it's the same size target at every distance and the center ring is three inches and you get 10 points for that and then whatever the other size is you get eight points six points and five and uh, in my head I was like you know my gun shoot's pretty good I feel like I could probably do that and so um, I registered for the match and um, my wife Christy and I we drive down there and pretty customary for us we sleep in a tent and we eat bologna sandwiches because we're trying to do things as cheap as possible and uh um the the next morning the first round um i think i get like 88 or 90 points and i'm like gosh like i'm gonna get crushed because to me that that three inch ring seemed like if everyone's gun is shooting half a minute no one's gonna gonna miss that three inch ring and I think I was sitting in like fifth or sixth after the first round and they cut the field in half. And then the next round is at 750. And I was sitting somewhere in the very same area after the second round and they take the final 12 to the last round. And uh, I had a pretty good last round. I ended up losing the match by one uh, one point. it was like... 215 to 214 or something um i mean it was very close but i got second place and i made you know thirty seven hundred dollars. like i was i was done shooting after this for who knows how long because i just didn't have the money to buy to buy bullets and then that payout from that match is what really jump started me because i immediately got to go buy bullets for the rest of the year powder (laughs) whatever and that's when i really started hitting it hard um and i shot a few of those matches and those really you know were the Were the reason that I was able to keep going to matches and, and keep shooting. I mean, they just, they were a lifesaver for me
0: from the past 15 minutes that we've been on the phone, listening to your story of how you got involved in precision rifle to knowing where you are today reads like a Hollywood movie script. (laughs) It's like you, you find something that you love, you struggle to get into it. You want to be the best. Then you put everything on the line and you win some money, and that jumpstarts your whole your whole career in this sport.
1: It really didn't. You know, some people probably won't believe how that story happened, but I mean, I just, I me and my wife had kind of accepted that that was my last match going down there to Texas, at least until you know the business got rolling, and it just kind of snowballed from there. I still didn't know very many people in the game, and it that's when I really started to meet people and realize how how great everyone is around me but i mean if it was not for those those matches i call them big money matches i just wouldn't have been able to continue i mean everybody knows that this game is is expensive right. um very expensive to play and i mean you, you'd vomit if you knew you know what we were bringing into as, as a household at that time i mean my, my wife or yeah my wife was not um able to work she was from canada she didn't have her she had her permanent residence re- re- residency <laughs> but she uh she didn't have her work authorization yet, so and me not paying myself a salary. I mean, like, there just there was not money. I I had no business getting that gun built in the first place, really. Um, I sold basically every gun that I had, um, just to uh, just to get that one built. I mean, just I, I should never have even started, really. It, like looking at it from a financial standpoint, I never should have gotten started. But once I did, I just couldn't stop.
0: Wow, that that's again, that's such a crazy awesome story. So, did all of this take place the first year you started shooting, or was this like the first and second year?
1: That was all the first year. Um, the and the so that was twenty seventeen. Okay. Um, was was that year? And I uh, my goal was just to make it to the finale that year, and and I did. And then the second year is when I started really trying to chase stuff. Um, so. 2018, I I went after it a lot harder, um, and then you know this year I just kept on going. 2018, I practiced a lot. Um, I'd go out pretty pretty often um, and practice, but uh, um, and then shoot a lot of club matches. I have shot a lot of club matches, whether it was um, just at Justin's range or whether they're um, the Oklahoma. Matches the OPPS matches. I I shot a lot of matches, and I think that was probably one of the biggest factors. Because um, you can practice all you want. Like you could get a guy like Matt Brosso, who's obviously as good as it gets, and put his abilities into a new shooter with all his knowledge and everything, and that person is still not going to win. There's just something about the mind game of the match and the experience of shooting in a certain number of matches b- before things click, in my opinion. Um, and we I've talked about with several top tier shooters and they agree that there's just something about shooting X amount of matches before it starts to click. Um and that was probably one of the biggest differences this year is I didn't practice as much, but I shot more big matches. And so it was just the experience of being in the situations that that I think helped a lot.
0: Man, that that's awesome. So when did you start shooting PRS NRL style matches? Was that in 2017 or 18?
1: Uh, 17.
0: So, okay. And then you and I, I can't remember. I have a horrible memory, but did we meet in, at the end of 17 or in 18? 18. Okay. that That's what I thought. And then last year or 2019, you spent a lot of time focusing on chasing the, the title for the PRS, which again, congratulations, you are their champion. Um, how did that whole experience go for you?
1: Um, it's going to sound cocky and I don't mean it that way. It just, again, like I always wanted to, to be as good as possible at anything that I was doing. Um, and you're going to laugh, but from the time that I was on T-ball till the time that I was on junior high, our, uh, our baseball team never lost a game. So like winning was just ingrained, like I, and I realize, uh, I realize it's, you know, T-ball coach pitch 10 and under 12 and under stuff like that. But, uh, I mean it's still to not lose a game. I mean like so whenever we lost our first game, I mean, we cried. Like just you know, we're like <laughs> right. 12-year-old kids and we're just, you know, balling because we didn't know what losing was like. And right. so um but again, I don't mean it in a in a cocky way, but I wanted to be the best and I told pretty much anybody that would listen that I was going to that I was going to win it this year. Um and that that was my goal all year long. And so I was just trying to put myself in a in a position to the at the finale where I could, you know, make a play like that and it just I mean, there's a lot of things that have to go right. Um, there's so many good shooters out there. And at any given match, there's always legitimately probably between wherever you are, 20 to 50 people that are good enough to win that match. It's just whether they make a mistake or not, whether they get a little bit unlucky or not. And it doesn't matter how good you are. You have to have some luck on your side. Um, I mean, there's the stars especially, have to align. Yeah, they they have to. And especially at a place like K&M where there's a lot of little win switches. I mean, somebody could take the exact same shot as the person in front or behind them and hit half as many, right. um, It just depending on how, how the wind breaks for you um, at that time. So, I mean, obviously there's some, some luck involved there, but um, you know sometimes things just go your way.
0: So, now, I mean, it, it's weird because you have this mindset of always being a champion. So, how do you mentally – because I know I've talked to a ton of people about this topic, but how do you mentally – overcome a defeat then because you're so to me you're very extreme i mean you're always always winning or you always have that mindset so how do you if you have a horrible stage or you miss that first place by a couple of points how do you resonate with that and how do you overcome that
1: uh it burns i mean it, it bothers me whenever uh whenever i don't win and obviously nobody wins all the time or even half the time um at this game but uh what I try to do is just think about what I could have done better, whether it was that stage or just that match in general. I think about, I mean, everyone's going to miss shots. Even if you do everything right, you're going to miss some shots. But I try and think about what I could have done better. Like if I had seen this in the moment, if I had thought, you know, this was a better way to do it, Um, you know, and people um, that I talk to, I have this conversation a lot and like, do you remember such and such stage at this match? I'm like, yeah, I got a nine on that one and you got a 10. Um, and pretty much anybody that I shoot with, like I can tell you like what score they got, where, because I, I'm watching, you know, and I probably too much. I try to watch what everyone's doing. Cause I, you can learn from anybody. And right. so, If this person, even if I've never seen him before, maybe this is their home range. Maybe they're just good at this style of stage. I'll watch them and see if there's something that I can learn. So I'll go back and think about, you know, the stages that I did poorly, the shots that I broke poorly, whatever it is, and see if there's something that I saw there that I could have done better and just try and apply it for the next time around.
0: Okay, so then if – let's say you and I are on a course of fire and we're watching Austin who's shooting before us. I have a mental game plan on how I'm going to approach that stage. You have a mental game plan on how you're going to approach that stage. Austin goes up there and he cleans it, but he shot it different than how you thought you would shoot it. Do you change your strategy or do you go with the same strategy that you had planned and act like you never saw him?
1: Uh, It depends a little bit um, on what it is. I'd say nine times out of 10, I'm still going to go with my plan. Uh, Even if his is better, um, because if it's something I'm more comfortable with, I'm still going to go with mine. So if I'm if I'm comfortable um, with what I'm doing, I, I want to go with my plan. But there are some things that you watch someone do, like oh, that is obviously the right way to do it. Like yeah, you know, I never thought about it like that. And the NRL finale was an example of that. There was a railroad tie stage, and you had to shoot out of this bottom section first, and then go to a couple, you know, middle and higher sections, and then right. back to the bottom section. And almost everybody put a bag in that bottom section and shot like that. And I watched some people shoot that bottom section with just a bipod with a couple of notches. I'm like, that's, that was infinitely better than what I tried to do. Um, so if something like that, if I see someone do something like that that's obviously better, then I'm going to do it. But Austin had... Austin and Tate both have a very unique talent of being able to use a bipod on absolutely anything. And I got burned a couple of times trying to copy (laughs) what they did. So um, if it's Tate or Austin, a lot of times I'll just do what I'm doing because they can just do things that no one else can, especially with a bipod. Um, But uh, if I see something that's just blatantly obvious, then I'm going to switch. But otherwise I try to stick with what I'm comfortable with.
0: Nice. Now you talked about you know, being able to learn from a lot of great shooters—Austin, Tate, Rick, Justin—all these guys—you uh, travel quite a bit with the same group of guys. When you're traveling with them, are you like, are you guys in the car? Like, what's if I'm in a car going to a match with you guys? What is the topics of conversations? What are you guys, you know, going through in your head? Are you talking about the match? Are you talking about the the rifle? Uh, what's, what's going on in that car?
1: Um, any number of things. Um, a lot of those guys, I load their ammo. So on the way out there, I'm telling them, Hey, just so you know, I overcharged a few of them and I strategically <laughs> placed them in your boxes. So heads up just to, just to mess with them. But almost right. anything you hear, uh, on the way is just going to be trash talk. Um, whether it's about the match. And a lot of times it is about the match. Cause we all think we're all going to win and tell each other why we're going to win instead of the other person. But, uh, um it's a lot of times it's just, you know, matches and hunting. Um and when we bore out those topics, obviously we we get into sports and things like that. And we also talk about our families quite a bit. Um, I mean that's you know, something that uh <clears throat> that is a lot harder for some guys to do, um right. because they've got kids and and I don't and Tate's always calling uh and FaceTiming his kids whenever we're on the road and same thing with Justin and um I mean everyone's always always calling home but it, it's different for those guys having kids but uh um i'd say those are the the main topics you know just the match haunting and then you know what's going on back home
0: now you also i remember you used to bring your wife to a couple of matches does she still travel with you when she can
1: when she can she got a different job um and, uh, it's more nine to five ish now. And a lot of okay. the time we have to leave on Thursday or early Friday. And especially this year, her vacation from the beginning of the year was already laid out because she had, uh, um, a stag and dough that she had to organize, um, which is kind of a, a mix between like a it's like a fundraising party bachelor bachelorette thing at the same time but all the families are invited um, before the we- just to pay for the wedding um, it's the thing that they do in Canada and uh, she was doing that for her sister and then uh, she was going to be in Canada for at least a week maybe two for the wedding and then you know always a week or so. Uh, for Christmas. So her vacation time was taken the moment, the first of the year hit of 2019. So, um, she didn't really get to go to, to anything. Um, but, uh, hopefully that'll change, you know, cause she's, she's trying to organize her vacation a little bit different this year. It was just all allocated before we ever got rolling in 2019. Gotcha.
0: So 2019 was a huge year for Oklahoma. Tate yeah. took home the NRL championship. You took home the PRS championship you guys hosted, the state of Oklahoma hosted quite a few matches. Um, what is that going to look like moving forward for 2020 since the championship is now in Oklahoma? Tate's going to be running that for the NRL, I believe. Are you co-match directing the championship, or are you going to try to compete in that?
1: Uh, I'm going to try and compete in it. Okay. Uh, and, unless he asks me otherwise, and I just can't imagine that he will because he wants to see me succeed. Um, I'm going to be I'm going to be competing for that.
0: But he's co-matching, co-match directing your match. Yes. Okay. So this is going to be your first NRL match um, in 2020. What is this match going to be like? Have you guys discussed uh, ideas, things that you want to do differently, things that you like from other matches that you want to try to implement in your own style? Uh, Is there any kind of, you know, idea of what's going on? Because we're going to open up. The registration for your match here in a couple of
1: weeks yep. so everything as far as the course of fire is almost designed um we uh we're going to do things and i would say in a little bit of a traditional sense but just in what we feel is a better way to implement it so um of Everybody's gonna shoot the same stages both days, so there's not gonna be any question of, you know, did you shoot, you know, these stages at a good time versus these, you know, you got to shoot the long stuff, you know, during the non-windy day and you know, we got hosed. We don't wanna hear any of that. And right. uh the way we're wanting to do it is that every other stage will be will have some distance to it, not necessarily like a fifteen hundred yarder stage, but we're trying to stagger it in a way that it doesn't matter where you start and where you finish you're not going to get caught by mirage and get saved by, you know, by shooting this long range stage early. We're going to try and spread it out so that, you know, it's going to be the same difficulty across the board and, uh, do a positional and then a prone slash modified prone positional prone, modified prone, something like that. So it's just, it's going to be 50, 50, uh, positional versus prone. There's not going to be any gimmick stages, anything that, is man-made is going to be concrete in the ground, um, and anything natural is obviously going to be pretty heavy in itself. So nothing's going to be wobbly. It's whoever comes out and shoots the best is going to win. And we're also um, implementing a couple things that you'll have to come out and see to make sure that new shooters get get to have a lot of fun. They get to ha- you know get their hits, but you're not going to wonder who the best shooter was at the end of the day.
0: Nice, very nice. Uh, Twenty stages. Twenty stages okay uh what is your capacity are you going for 100 or more or less
1: 120 is the absolute maximum
0: 120 okay awesome um this part of oklahoma that we're going to this is family land
1: yes it's my parents property
0: okay so all the ranges that i've been to in oklahoma well the two that I've been to in Oklahoma one was a wind farm and one I couldn't tell what the hell it was because it was nighttime that I was shooting it <laughs> so what is the terrain at your match
1: a um, lot of draws a um, lot of hills um, I mean rolling hills all over there are some some wheat fields that are going to make um, some some we're going to do some interesting stuff on the wheat fields um, but uh, both days are going to be shot from uh, oil field locations and um in spanning the outside of that location, you can shoot in two hundred seventy degrees out to thousand yards, um, from any position on there. Um at minimum a thousand yards the next day is a location on the opposite side of the property facing back towards the first one so both days you're going to be able to shoot in 270 degrees um and so it's not going to be a a copy and paste wind thing where all the winds from nine o'clock at 10 mile an hour let's just run that all day long you're going to have to to make some better wind calls because you're going to have wind angle changes from stage to stage and a lot of times on the same stage
0: nice that sounds very awesome so With that in mind, and, and it's basically a field style match. Um, I know in the past, Oklahoma has been notorious. And a lot of people are actually afraid to come to Oklahoma because of the winds and small targets. Are we still following that same type of format where it's super windy at your, your parents' ranch, or we don't have to worry about that as much?
1: I mean, obviously we can't control the wind. I mean, it could be anything from, from nothing to 25. I mean, you you never know, but, uh, um <clears throat> the way that we've got it um mapped out, it it it's not gonna be shooting one minute troop lines. I mean it's not gonna be anything like that where you're you're worried if you're gonna walk away with a thirty percent hit rate. I mean the winner's hit rate is gonna be the standard, you know, eighty to ninety. Somewhere in there is gonna be what the, the winner hits, just like basically every match is, no matter where you go in the country. And again, we're designing the stages so that the beginning shooters are they're not going to walk out of there with their you know their heads down upset that they you know couldn't hit anything we're going to make sure that new shooters can can get their points but it's not going to be a meatball match and it's sure not going to be you know a bunch of one-minute troop lines out to 1500 yards (laughs) anything like that um but uh we're going to utilize a lot of double targets um so you know let's just say that making up a number at 400 yards you might shoot a, a 12 inch and then an 8 inch and then you move 12 inch 8 inch so the the 12 is going to be more of your you know get you a point whereas you're going to have to be on your game to to get the 8 inch um so um that's one of the ways that we're uh, going to try and make sure that you know people are going to be able to get their hits but if you're on your game you're going to separate yourself
0: nice very nice. It sounds very exciting. I can't wait to get out there. And your match is March, what, 28th and 29th, correct?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Perfect. Now, we've talked a little bit about everything here, but what we haven't talked about is gear. What gear, well, we kind of did, but what gear more specifically are you running and why have you chosen those components?
1: Um, like entire gear? Or just... Yeah, entire
0: gear. Let's start from your your rifle build. Um. Obviously, you're shooting an impact. What yep. caliber are you shooting? Um, you believe you're still shooting for a foundation.
1: Yep. Um, so, I shoot a six BRA uh, running A tips at 2775. And a lot of people look at me cross eyed and think that I said that wrong. But uh, um, there's just something to be said for being able to watch your bullet while it flies, and you never have to worry about getting back on target to, to see where where you hit on plate um i think that's infinitely more important than be able to being able to cheat the wind a little bit and uh i use the foundation stock the genesis um it's their first model and i've just not seen any reason to change it's just it's awesome and the way it it deadens recoil is something that we've all struggled to explain and you just can't really until you get behind it and just experience it because i just there aren't words it doesn't make make any sense it's just incredibly effective um and you I like a more traditional stock rather than a chassis, um but uh, in putting the arc array on the bottom, you can get all the attachments from uh, from having a chassis. Right. So I think it's the the best of both worlds. Um I use a Harris bipod always I don't mess with any other bipods. Um, it, I've yet to find a stage anywhere in the country that i couldn't couldn't make work with a Harris. Um, I use a uh, a tangent theta with a gen three x r reticle and spur rings and uh i'm using the uh the new apa break and which is phenomenal um which i wish i hadn't said because now people are going to buy them and see what i see <laughs> um but uh um as far as my bags i only carry one bag it's the Weebad wax canvas mini fortune cookie with the heavy fill it's the only bag i carry and it's the same one that i've been carrying since march or april right when they right when they came out and um, i got to play with one of the uh the demos that tate had and there's just it's the best bag by far i use it as my rear bag i use it for front support doesn't matter what i'm doing that's the only bag that i carry um very very rarely if a stage requires two bags i'll borrow one from somebody but i'd venture to guess that 90 percent of my matches i've never used anything more than that one bag and i can tell you that on 100 percent of my stages i have used that bag um nice and I mean, I carry a tripod with me, but that's just to hold my binos. I don't. It's a it's a very rare day when I use that for rear support.
0: So, with that being said, you know, if you look at the most elite shooters in the nation, the gear that they carry is very simple. They don't carry a lot of extra fluff or bags or or accessories or attachments or whatever the hell you want to call it. Why? You know what is what do you think the reason is for that fascination of having all of this gear versus actually being able to use it for, for better performance?
1: I think part of it is the, uh, the what if factor mate some people that do that, haven't shot a lot of matches and they feel like, well, I, I just want to make sure that I'm prepared for anything that I see. But uh, I think after shooting a certain number of matches, you just kind of see what you use all the time and what will almost never come into play. And so you just stop carrying it. Um, but uh, there's, there's something to be said for being good with a tripod in rear support. Uh, Clint Adams is an absolute machine with a tripod. And if yes. I was as good as, it, as he is, then, then I might use one a little bit more. But uh, it's just more things to practice. And it's it's a good skill to have. But uh, if you're not good with it, it can really hinder you. And that's kind of more the position I am where I haven't practiced with a tripod enough to be good with it. So I'm better off just using that one bag. And I think that it's kind of there's that saying where you fear the guy with one gun. Um, if you get good with one thing, you don't really need anything else. And that's, I think that's as, as much as, you know, the benefit is anything is you just don't have to learn how to use all these different things and all these different scenarios and make them work together. If you can just get one thing that works and, and modify it for the situation, you're good to go.
0: Keep it simple.
1: Yep. hundred percent.
0: Nice. Very nice. So now we're going to talk about chocolate and nuts.
1: They don't belong together. <laughs> they don't play nice together. You know, Peanuts, walnuts, pecans, anything like that, they're great. They're delicious by themselves. They, just, they, don't, they don't belong in chocolate, cakes, brownies, ice creams, cookies, candy bars. They don't belong in any of it. They, just, they don't play nice with others, especially peanuts. They just overtake the flavor of my chocolate, and that's just inappropriate.
0: Okay, so now I'm going to call you out because you don't like nuts and chocolate, but you'll eat a Reese's peanut butter cup.
1: Yes, but there's that crunch factor. So if you eat a peanut by itself, it has a very strong flavor. But peanut butter, it's almost like a watered-down flavor. Like I like the flavor of a peanut, but it doesn't get so overpowering. Maybe it's the crunch. Maybe it's a little bit of both. But I know that a Reese's is okay, but a Snickers (laughs) is not that makes
0: absolutely no sense and i'm i'm willing to bet that at least 70% of the people that listen to what you just said are going to think you're crazy
1: i i think that's a pretty low number i'd say it's probably closer to 99 or 100
0: <laughs> yeah i was trying to be
1: nice but i just there's something about a candy bar i just can't can't do without them um i thought at one point you know i'll just stop eating these but then i was like why they just They're just too good. I I don't go to matches without at least two of them each day. I just, part of that is probably just comfort at this point because half the time I won't eat the second one, but I know it's there just in case I need it. Just in case.
0: So it's funny that you say that because when I first, well, maybe not when I first met you, but when you and I first had this conversation about you always having to have chocolate in your bag or you can't shoot, that's when I started asking the questions on my podcast about the three things that you must have as a competitor. So that whole segment was inspired by the conversation (laughs) you and I had at a match, just so you know.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Chocolate, you know, makes a big impression on everybody. I'm glad it's it's making its moves in the world.
0: So with that being said, we're almost at the end of our show. I'm going to ask you, what are the three things that you must have at a match and you can't say chocolate? So three other things that you have to have at a match or do before a match or a superstition
1: or something of that nature. Um, I'm guessing anything rifle related is off the table. Correct. I mean, that's all standard operating stuff. Okay. Um, I absolutely need a white monster to, to start the day. um, People okay. are going to think, why are you drinking an energy drink before you shoot a match? Doesn't that make you jittery? It absolutely doesn't. And whether that's because I've drank them for too long or what, I don't know. But um, I just love the taste of that White Monster. I don't drink any other energy drink. I think most of them you know, just don't have that good of taste. But the White Monster is where it's at. Um, it's a little bit of an Austin, Oregon thing, but I've adopted it. Can't shoot a match without ChapStick. Uh, there's just nothing worse than being out in the middle of a hundred degree day. It's windy and you don't have chapstick. Um, and I don't know what a third one would be. Maybe, uh, maybe my phone, I don't get it out very much during a match unless I, you know, have a, a rough stage and I need something to distract me. But, uh, I'd say maybe that one is my third one. Not that I use it very often, but let's call that my third one.
0: Nice. Nice. So you heard, you heard it here, folks. It's chocolate, which is, you know, it's a must for him no matter what. White monster, chapstick, and his phone from the 2019 PRS champion, Mr. Clay Blackheader. Congratulations again. Thank Um, you. I want to say thank you to you for taking the time to be on the show today. Is there anything that you want to say to anybody out there listening? Let's give a plug for your company. Where can people find out more information about Clay's cartridge, website, Uh, break it down for us
1: um the website's clay's cartridge um you can message us on our facebook page obviously but uh if you need a gun need load development on your gun you need uh, ammo maybe you've got a recipe already and you just don't have the time to load it you know we're happy to uh put that together for you but everything that we do is to the kernel and to the thousandth and uh so give us a call and enjoy those single digit extreme spreads
0: There you go, folks. You heard it here first. Clay's cartridge. They're doing some of the best reloading in the nation for some of the top competitors. Clay, uh, he has risen to those ranks. He is forever in the history books of precision rifle as a champion. Now he's got to come after the NRL championship in 2020, and it's going to be a phenomenal season.
1: Heck yeah. I'm excited for it.
0: Yes, sir. So until next time, guys, uh, stay safe, keep shooting, and we'll see you all at the range. Take care.